How's everybody doing? Yeah, it's great to see you. Now, if I could ask this, um, how many of you are totally done with your Christmas shopping? Can I ask that? Look at that. Uh, what? One, two, three, four, five, five people. Wow, six, seven. Wow, these are the geniuses in our midst. These are the people that do not have to fight with the mall anymore. So I commend you. I started my Christmas shopping yesterday, and I bought more stuff for myself than I bought for anybody else. So I don't think it, it went all that well. Uh, but I'll tell you this. I, I ask you that because uh, there's, it's not so much a store that you go to, but it's a, more like a museum. Uh, just outside of Ithaca, New York, uh, which is in upstate New York, there's this museum for products that have failed. And here's the thing about this museum. The entry fee for this museum, $5,000 a person. And uh, business executives line up to enter it. And the whole thing, the whole point is, this museum is like a hall of shame for all these products that have come out that nobody bought, all these products that everybody says, you know, what were they, all, what were they thinking, uh, that sort of thing. And in this museum, there's over $4 million of inventory in this, you know, hall of shame. So just to give you an idea, things that came out, like 7-Up came out with lip balm, because, you know, that just seems like something you'd want to buy, a 7-Up lip balm. Um, V8 came out with a tomato sauce, which nobody bought. There was also something that came out in the 80s. It's called Short and Sassy. It's shampoo for women who have like Dorothy Hamill-type haircuts. Um, I have some pictures here, too. There's this, um, Ben Gay aspirin, because it smells so good, you might want to eat it. Um, and then there's also this, Dunkaball cereal. Now, Wheaties came out with this, and this was their, their motto was, it was telling kids to play with their food. That's why it was in the shape of basketballs. You can imagine how well that went over with parents. Um, there's this one. This is one of my favorites. Lonely man. This is actually for all you lonely guys out there. This meal is for you. That was their tagline. It bombed. And so the company changed it to hungry man, which you've probably heard of. But see, nobody wants to buy something called lonely man. You know, like you see some guy with his little cart. Like I got six lonely man this week. My social life is great. Uh, uh, The next one is singles. Now, singles is interesting because if you can see, it's it's made by Gerber. It's Gerber baby food except for adults. So you've been feeding this to your kids like, I so wish I could eat one of these. Well, now you have some, but this totally bombed. Um, This one is great. Thirsty dog. There's also thirsty cat. This is um, bottled water for your pets. By the way, if you give bottled water to your pet, um, you have a problem. Um, There's this next one. This is, uh, Clairol made this. Now this is yogurt flavored shampoo. So, like, I don't know, I don't really have this problem, but let's say you're like lathering up, and you're like, ah, and then some of the shampoo got in your mouth, it'd be okay, you'd be like, oh, that's delicious, it tastes like yogurt. So that's kind of how that would work. And then, um, this, speaking of that, there's uh, this, this is Coors came out with sparkling water, because that's who you want making your water, or the beer people. Uh, the next one is uh, Colgate started making frozen dinners because just when you thought, like, I so love the toothpaste taste, I wish I could have it in a meal. And that's where that's from. And then, of course, this is the last one. This is Jell-O salads. Um, this is for the more health conscious amongst us. Like, I love Jell-O pudding, but I would love it in a salad. Uh, and so anyway, but the whole thing is this. This is the whole idea behind this, this museum. And this is just a small sampling of everything that they have. I didn't have time to get like to bring you a whole do a whole show and tell with you. But why do executives pay so much? And the reason is is because what they don't want, they never want to repeat the same mistakes that have already been made.
Now, here's why I tell you all of this by way of introduction, is that the Bible can serve for us in the same way that this museum serves the business community. You see, what the Bible can do is show us what a certain way of thinking, a certain way of acting, a certain type of decision-making, if we follow it to its logical conclusion, this is where it leads. And it can become a museum for us of, if you do this, this is what happens. If you do this, then this is what happens. Maybe I don't want to do that because I don't like how this guy's life ended up, and so maybe I need to make some different choices. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, the Apostle Paul would write it this way. These things happen to them as examples and are written down for us as warnings to whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The story we're about to read is like watching a train wreck in progress. The character, Samson. The problem, he's been on a collision course with a fall. And everyone around him can see it except for him. What Samson has done is just flirt with sin and just inch himself closer to the line, but now he finds himself as standing very, very close to the edge because what happens is when you live right on the edge, it just takes a little bump for you to go over the edge and that's the thing that we're going to see happen in Samson's life and Samson is going to find himself getting the most famous haircut in all of the Bible. And see, the thing that Samson does is the thing that sometimes we do as well. We find out where the line is, the line between this is not sin and that is sin. And we just find exactly where the line is. And we try to camp right here, saying I can get as close as I can to sin without actually sinning. Can I just challenge you in this? This is like the worst possible place to live because you're just one push, one step away from being on the other side of sin and being at the point now of no return. You see, what we tend to do is kind of like what my son does. My son is almost 17 months old, and um, as a, a little boy, he is climbing on everything. Whenever we walk out of the room, we come back 30 seconds later, he's standing on top of something. And um, like the other day, in our living room, we have this, um, my daughter has this little pink pretend uh, kitchen, you know, it's like her size, and um, and so she, you know, does like her cooks things or whatever for her dolls when she has her tea parties. That's like where most of the tea party stuff is prepared, is in her little in her little kitchen. Well, my son the other day, we all walked out of the room to go into the real kitchen. Well, he stays there and he starts yelling. I, we walk back in. He's standing on top of the kitchen. And the way he did it was, and we're like, how did he do this? He actually opened the door, to, like the little oven, put one foot inside of the fake oven, put his knee on top of the door, and then climbed up to the top. And he just figures out ways. We found him on top of the entertainment center the other day. We have like one of these lower entertainment centers, maybe like two or three feet high. And we're like, how did he get up there? He wanted to touch the TV. So he took the toy box that's there. He flipped it over. This kid's like a little MacGyver. You know, he flipped it over, climbed on top of that, then climbed on top of the entertainment. It's crazy. So we're putting up the Christmas tree, right? And we tell him, Xander, you are not allowed to climb on top of the um, on top of the ladder, because I had the ladder out because we're going to put the top, uh, the uh, the star on the top of the tree. So here's what my son, this little sinner. Here's what he does. He goes like this. He's not climbing. He just has one foot on the ladder and then he touches it and he just lives right there. 
And then, so I walk out to get something. 30 seconds later, this is him. This is him at the top of the ladder. This is a six-foot ladder, by the way. It took him at maximum 45 seconds to, uh, to, get, to, to get to the top. And he was thrilled. His, the only thing that he was upset about is that he couldn't get to this other, this other rung because he wanted to climb all the way to the top. And I'm sure jump off because that's the only natural thing that you would want to do. But he just has to, he has to climb up. But what he does is he just kind of lives right on the line. And, and the thing for us to learn is this. The thing that he does, the thing that we do, the thing that Samson does is that none of us have to end up like Samson. None of us does. Instead, what we can do is exercise some wisdom. What we can do is maybe create some safeguards. Maybe what we can do is actually obey what it is that God is saying. And you know what we'll find? The very thing that Samson finds, but he doesn't find it until the end of his life. At the very end, at the last moment of his life, does he realize that everything doesn't revolve around his strength. Instead, what really, where strength is found, is in admitting your weakness before God. And that becomes now the source of his strength, is really his relationship with God. He finds some humility at the end of his life, and that's how God is then finally able to use him in the way that God has really wanted to use him and see him do something amazing with his life as he becomes the man that ultimately God wants him to be. But once again, that happens only in the very end. But it didn't have to be that way. Instead, right now, Samson is on a collision course with the fall. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's because of a couple of things. Let me have you turn to the book of Judges, chapter 16, and I'll show you. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there, and went into her. And when the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they were all quiet. They were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low until midnight. And then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the gatepost, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. If you pause there and give me your attention, why is Samson on a collision course with a fall? Here's number one. is because Samson believed that the rules didn't apply to him. It's not that he didn't believe there were rules. He believed there were rules, but he did not believe that the rules applied to him. And can I just tell you something maybe more textual of this, this passage? It's this. I've read this passage dozens of times. Um, I studied judges in college. Um, I have taught this passage many times. And can I just tell you that um, when I've, the, the dozens of times that I've read the, the story of Samson, this story doesn't really fit. You see, when you read about God, in chapter 13, the angel visits Samson's parents. In chapter 14, he tries to marry this woman. In chapter 15, he goes back to see this woman. And then... Later in chapter 16, we're going to meet Delilah and that whole situation. But these three verses don't fit. It's just he goes to Gaza, he sleeps with this prostitute, and then he gets upset, he picks up the gates of the city, which, by the way, weighed about two and a half tons, and marches them to this hill, which was about four and a half miles away, um, and puts them there. And it's like, well, what is the point here? Because this doesn't really push the plot along. And so, well, why is it here? I believe it's here because Samuel, the writer of the book of Judges, is trying to give us a typical day in the life of Samson. That Samson was so far gone 
He has strayed so far from what God wanted him to do that this is just a typical thing that Samson would do. He would just go where he's not supposed to go, be engaged in some activities he's not supposed to be engaged in, and then the answer for everything was his strength. And he just toyed with his relationship with God and toyed with people and because that's the very thing that he did because Samson had this belief is that there were rules, but that the rules did not apply to him. Samson's story in chapter 13 of Judges begins with his parents. And it begins with his parents being visited by an angel. And the angel telling them that he's going to have this special relationship with God. He's going to be a Nazarite. And that commitment to God, that relationship with God, would give him incredible strength. And that his Nazarite vow from birth would be the symbol of his commitment to God. And I have in your notes um, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. That's really there more for your reference. But the, what happens in Numbers chapter 6 is three, this is what they're told, three things. If you take the vow of the Nazarite, here's what it is. No wine, no grapes, nothing involved, you know, nothing that's fermented, not even vinegar made from grapes. So no wine, no touching dead bodies, no haircuts. That's basically what it comes down to. These are the three laws of the Nazarite. And yet I want you to follow the progression of Samson's life. Because Samson now starts toying with sin. And here's the thing that happens is that he starts breaking some of the vows of the Nazarite. But you know what he finds? He's still strong. He breaks, well, let me just read it to you. In, uh, it's in your notes in chapter 14 of Judges. It says this, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, well, he's walking through the vineyards, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. And the spirit of the Lord powerfully came upon him and he tore the young lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father or mother what he had done. And when he had and he went down and talked with the woman and liked her. And sometime later, he went back to marry her. He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass and he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. And he scooped out the honey with his hands and ate and went along. And when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Once again, first rule of the Nazarite, no dead bodies. In fact, in the, in the numbers passage, it says even if your father, your mother, your brother or your sister die, you can't even attend the funeral if you've taken the vow of the Nazarite. But see, he rips this lion apart and just the curiosity is killing him. Maybe I can just go see how it's doing. Pretty sure it was dead, same way it was when you killed it. But he just decides to go see. And he sees it, he sees the honey there, he takes some and eats it, touching the dead body, thus now breaking one of the three laws of the Nazarite. But here's the thing. He's still strong. I guess the rule doesn't apply to him. Well, look what happens next. It's in your notes, it's chapter 14 and verse 10. As his father was making final arrangements for the marriage, Samson threw a party at Timnah, as was the custom for the elite young men. Now, here's the thing. This party that's mentioned in verse 10 of that of that verse, it's literally in Hebrew, a drinking party that lasts for seven days in that culture. But once again, so he's got this seven day drinking binge. He's touched a dead body, but he's still strong. 
And, and see, here's the thing that happens is that Samson may have said up to this point, well, you know, the lion came out of nowhere. That's not my fault. The, the drinking thing, well, come on, that's just customary in my culture. But now he's sleeping with prostitutes and here's what he does. At midnight, he's not asleep. He wakes up and he goes to the, to the gate of the city and tears it off and carries it now four and a half miles, this thing that weighs two and a half tons. Why? Because he wants to make sure that he still has his strength because he keeps inching towards the line. And he's like, well, am I still going to be strong if I do this? Am I still going to be strong if I do that? Am I still going to be strong if, if I can I still get away with this? And he wants to make sure that he still has enough strength to defeat his enemies. And here is Samson's problem. And sometimes it's our problem as well. Is that Samson is under the impression I've done all this and God hasn't judged me, which means God must be okay with it. And see, he thinks now that God is okay with his actions, even though just because God hasn't judged him. And here's the thing. We can get involved in sin. And just because the judgment of God doesn't crush us immediately, that doesn't mean the rules don't apply to us. Can I tell you what it means? It means that God's grace is greater even than our sin. What it means is this, is that maybe God in his infinite love, even though he could and should crush us immediately with with his judgment to get us back online. Here's what he does in his love and in his grace. He says, I'm going to give you some space. I'm going to give you some space for you to figure it out. I'm going to give you some space for you to come to your senses and repent and turn to me. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, it says this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, I want you to think about this for a moment. When someone is involved in, in, in sin, what happens, when a person is involved in sin, they're not thinking rationally. They start thinking, oh, maybe God's okay with, with it. God's not okay with it. And if you take this to its logical conclusion, how do you think it's going to end? I mean, what do you think? Samson, you say, Samson, you're really going to do this? Is this going to end well? No, but he's not thinking rationally because when we're involved in sin, we're not thinking rationally. And being involved in sin is saying, I'm pretty sure that not going God's way is going to be better for me. I can promise you that's not the way that it's going to turn out to be best. See, there's another thing that, that the Bible teaches us, and that is that we reap what we sow. Samson is sowing all of this into his life. What does he think the harvest is going to be? Whatever it is that you're sowing in your life and I'm sowing in my life, there's going to be a harvest for that. What do we think it's going to be? Good or bad? But whatever it is that we sow, that's the thing that we're going to reap. But there's this other thing that's important for us to know know too. And that is that we don't just reap what we sow. We always reap more than we sow. Because that's just the laws of nature and those are spiritual laws as well. You put a few seed in the ground, you're not just going to get a few of whatever it is that you planted. No, you put some seed in the ground, you're going to get much more because that's the way it works. You always reap more than you sow. Spiritually speaking, in your notes in the book of Hosea, chapter 8, verse 7, it says this. It's in your notes. It says, they sow to the wind, and what do they reap? The wind? No. It says, they sow to the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. Why? Because you always reap more than you sow. And so just because God isn't judging him doesn't mean that God's okay with it. It doesn't even mean that God won't. The Bible says this. It's in your notes in Galatians chapter 6. 
It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If a man sows to the flesh, he will reap corruption. But if he sows to the spirit, he will reap eternal life. And so you say, well, God hasn't judged, so he must be okay with it. No, maybe that's not the case. Maybe God is giving you some space to repent. Well, what happens if I don't? Well, then just the way that it works, that when you sow something, you don't reap it immediately. And the same way you sow something, you're going to reap eventually. And do you know that the opposite of that is true as well? Is that when we sow good things into our life, when we do the godly thing in our life, that we reap the benefits of it as well? And that's one of the amazing promises of God, is that uh, when I do the right thing, when I obey God, when I walk with Him, I'm sowing those things into my life, and here's what I can be assured of, is that I will reap those things in my life as well. But the worst place to be is in the place that says, I'm pretty sure that there are rules, but that those rules don't apply to me. Oh, that's the worst place to be because the day that we reap the thing that we've sown will be totally shocked. And that's the place that Samson is totally shocked about what it is that he's going to reap. Look at what the Bible says, starting in verse four of Judges 16. It says after afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and with what you may be bound to afflict you. It's not even like she's like saying this in a tricky kind of way. You know, it's like, Hey, I would like to torment you. Could you just tell me how to do that? Like, uh, no. Anyway, so here's what happens. Verse 7, and Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought to her seven fresh bowstrings not dried, and she bound him with them. Now the men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, Philip, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he broke the bowstrings uh, the, the, the bow as a strand of yarn breaks when it tr- touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not yet known. And Delilah said to Samson, Look, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what uh, what you may be bound with. And he said to her, Well, if you bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I will become weak like any other man. So Delilah then took new ropes and bound him and said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men were lying in wait. And But he broke them off his arms like a thread. And Delilah said to Samson, uh, it's, it says, you've, up until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how, what you may be bound with. And he said to her, well, if you weave the seven locks of my head, uh, the seven locks of my hair uh, into, in, 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 into the, the web of the loom. And so then she wove it tightly. And the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled the batten of the loom from his hair. Uh, and, and then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? I mean, is this guy a complete idiot? Um, when your heart is not with me, you've mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass, this is key, verse 16, when she pestered him daily with her words, and pressed him that his soul was vexed to death. 
that he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, No razor has come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. And when Delilah saw that he had told her, um, I'm sorry, so the lords of the Philistines came up and brought the money in hand, and she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks from his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke up from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and made him a grinder in the prison. If you pause there and give me your attention. What's the second issue here with Samson? Number one, we talked about it, that he believed that the rules didn't apply to him. Number two is that Samson forgot that the source of his strength was God. The source of his strength was not his hair. Contrary to what people might think, the source of his strength was what the hair represented, his relationship to God and his commitment to God. <clears throat> I have a daughter who's turning four next month. And, um, and her and I, my daughter Mia, we talk about hair all the time. Um, we, uh, we do. And uh, she has this amazing, long, curly hair that many would love to have. And uh, mine leaves a little to be desired. And, um, and so the other day, we're, we're laying on the couch and we're watching a movie or something that she liked. And, and I turn to her and I say, Mia, I would really like long hair. And I said, would you be okay giving me some of your hair so I can put it on my head. And I, I kid you not, she turns to me and she puts her hand on my shoulder. Like, and you know, she puts her hand on my shoulder and she goes, Oh, Poppy, listen, God made me with long hair and God made you with little hairs. And she says, It's okay. And I mean, it like starts turning into this therapy session. So I decide to kind of push it a little bit more. And I say, but Mia, I really want long hair like you. And see, if you give me some of your hair, I can put it on my head. And then you can just grow more hair. And then we'll both have long hair. And then she says, Bobby, if God didn't give you long hair, it's because you're allergic to long hair. <laughs> and um, I knew once she played the allergy card that it was pretty much over. Um, and and, and now, 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 here's the thing. I tell you that. I tell you that. Because we have this tendency to think in the story of Samson that it's about long hair or little hair. It's not the issue. The issue is this. Um, when I was first taught this story, um, the, uh, and I understand, like, when you see the movie Samson and Delilah or whatever, the idea is this, is that, you know, Samson apparently takes some ancient Hebrew equivalent of NyQuil and, like, it totally knocks him out. You know, or Tylenol PM or something. He gets totally knocked out. And then someone comes along and just starts, you know, shaving his head. And, uh, and he's totally shocked when he wakes up. Now, listen, I don't know a lot about haircuts and I will, I will readily admit that. But I'm pretty sure, those of you that go to get your haircut regularly, um, if you fell asleep and someone started shaving your head, do you think you might wake up? Well, yeah, you know, 
you know, you probably wake up or someone takes a knife and starts like scraping the top of your head to cut your hair off. My guess is, especially if you've never had a haircut in your life, which would be kind of an odd sensation that you'd be getting your head shaved. My guess is you would probably wake up. So how is it that this guy doesn't wake up? Maybe the issue is, or, or maybe the question that we should be asking is, did Samson know that he was getting his haircut? And the answer is yes. But see, Samson was so far gone, he didn't think the haircut would do anything because because he touches the carcass and he's still strong. He has the part, the, the seven day drinking binge and, and it's, and he's still strong. He sleeps with prostitutes and he's still strong. And now he's thinking, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm still going to be strong because I apparently am the source of my own strength. But then he wakes up. And by the way, that's why after he gets his haircut, he says this to himself. He says, thus, I will go. I will shake myself off as before. And like the saddest phrase in all the Bible, I think, is at this very moment where he says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know the Lord had left him. You see, Samson had gotten to this place where he had just reached the point of no return. And, 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 and listen, and here's the thing that happens is that you get to the point of no return. And when you're on the, you know, you live on, right next to the line where sin is. And, and you say, well, uh, you know, it's okay. I'm not sinning, but I'm just right here on the line. But then you cross the line and you're on the other side. And now you're willing to do anything to get back. <laughs> you have, you know, you, t- you take a guy that now he doesn't make some, some wise choices with, with relationship, with, um, people that he spends time with and he maybe ends up committing some indiscretion and has an affair. Um, and, and he gets to the other side of sin and here's what he's willing to do. Anything to save his family, to save his marriage. A guy, you know, he, he does it. Now, here's the thing. Isn't it? This is the thing that I find so fascinating. But yet on this side, so many of us, we're not willing to really compromise because here's what we say. I'm not technically doing anything wrong. You know, by the way, if you have to use the term, I'm not technically doing anything wrong, you may be getting real close. But here's the thing that happens, is that um, you get to the other side, and the guy says, listen, honey, if you take me back, if we can just save our family, I'll quit my job, we'll sell the house, we'll move anywhere, I'll never speak to that person again, we can move to another city, I'll change my phone number, we'll change our address, I'll change my identity, I don't care what you want to do. Willing to do anything to get to the back to this side. But the question is, and this is, once again, I, I, I'm giving you an extreme case, but let me ask you this. What if we just, when we were here, we just made some decisions that were wise that put us over here? Or maybe put us over here? Or put us over here so that we were so far away from the line that we just, it, that even if we took one step toward the line, there would be a sense of conviction in our own hearts. You see, there are some personal safeguards that I set up in my own life that some people think are completely extreme. Um, and, and, and what happens is, you know, and I will admit that to some people that they might seem extreme. I've been doing it so long and to me it's totally normal. Um, you know, I won't drive in a car by myself with a woman who's not my wife. I just won't do it. I won't eat lunch, you know, uh, with, with a woman who's not my wife. Um, I, I won't counsel a woman, in, in, uh, you know, someone from church comes in and wants counseling. I won't counsel a woman alone in my office. Well, you're a pastor. Aren't you? Yeah, but the Bible says that the older women should teach the younger women. So maybe I should get out of that way and let maybe we should do like what the Bible says. 
And so it's like, you know, I don't have any women in my life that I call because I quote unquote just want to talk. You know, there's no no one in there's no woman's like, you know, hey, what's up? Oh, yeah, I just want to talk. Can we talk? No, I talk to my wife and I can talk to her pretty much any time. Right. You know, and, and but but that's the you know, well, I just I, there's you know, the girls are just good, you know, real good. Yeah. That you, if you have a wife, talk to her, you know. But see, there's this other girl. She really listens to me. You know, here's what you want to do in that. Just write this down. Run. All right. Just run um, because it's not going to end well. Now, here's the thing. You know, there's no Bible verses about that stuff. You know, there's no, you can't, you don't drive in a car. I mean, what do you think is going to happen in a car? You're just driving from here to Publix. I don't know, but I just won't do it. There's, there's no verse in the Bible. Thou shalt not drive in a chariot with thy neighbor's wife. <clears throat> no, you know, there's no Bible verse. It's just exercising some wisdom. Because I want to stay so far away from the line that, that I, 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 want to be, I want to be miles away from it. And so my counsel to you is this, is don't just try to find out where the line is. That's a lot of times the questions that we ask. I mean, how far can I? Maybe the question we need to ask is, how can I exercise wisdom and create some good safeguards? Because if we don't, listen, we're headed for the same fall that Samson was headed in. And now Samson is now reaping the full consequences of what he's sown into his life. And what does it say? What sin did to him? It says that it, it says that they got him and they put his eyes out. They blinded him. They put him with bronze fetters, bronze uh, handcuffs, essentially. It bound him. And then they made him a grinder in the prison. And that's what sin does. It blinds you. It binds you. And then it grinds you. Listen. This guy, do you understand that Samson was the leader of Israel? He was the guy that people, who's, who's your, that guy, he's the guy that we look to. And now he's been reduced to nothing. The Bible says this in, um, <clears throat> in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6. It says, for by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. And you know, there's something else I want to tell you that, that I think is important about this. It says that they made him a grinder in the prison. And a lot of commentaries, um, they just take the immediate uh, interpretation of that, which is they made him a grinder in the prison. And what would happen is that um, there was this, what would happen is there'd be this big wheel and then th- they would tie oxen to this wheel and they would just kind of grind out grain. And that was one of the ways that they threshed grain in that time. That wasn't the, 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 the Israeli way was to use a threshing floor, which we talked about in weeks past. But there's another, um, this idea of what it means to be, a, what, they made him a grinder in the prison and what that means. This Hebrew word, uh, tishan, is, 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 the, is the Hebrew word, and, or tahan is the way you technically say it for those of you that are like, you know, you got to do it the you know, right way. But here's the thing. Um, the way that, that, what this refers to, it's only used one other time in the Bible, this Hebrew word tishan. And it's, it's in... Uh, um, Job chapter 31, verse 10. And in Job chapter 31, verse 10, this word grinder is speaking of sexual relations or having a sexual relationship with someone. And what the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, taught this passage to mean that when Samson became a grinder in the prison was that what the Philistine men would do is that they would take their wives to this prison where Samson was and they would have their wives have sex with Samson so that they could be become pregnant by Samson and then have children who who were as strong as Samson to defend the Philistine army 
And so what happens is, is that now the very sin that blinded Samson now becomes the consequences of his sin. And listen, here, here's, the, here's the, the thing that's... You know that Samson's story could have ended right here. It could have ended right here. This whole thing happens with Delilah. They put his eyes out. He becomes a grinder in the prison and he gets involved in, in, in all of that. That's the end of the story. That's the consequences of sin. Next judge, because in the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their old eyes, in their own eyes. Let's turn the page and keep moving. But thankfully, that's not what happens. That even though God doesn't owe him anything, Samson's own actions have ruined his life. God, in his love, won't leave Samson there. Look at what happens next. Look at verse 22. However, the hair of Samson's head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. And when they saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land and the one who multiplied our dead. And so it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, call for Samson that he might perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. And then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. And now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. And then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once. O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple and braced himself against one, one on his right and the other on his left. And then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. And so the dead that he killed in his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of his father Manoah. And he had judged Israel for 20 years. Now, here's the last thing that I want to tell you about Samson's life at the very end. Is that at the very end, Samson experienced the God of grace. The God of grace, the God of second chances. You see... We hear the word grace, but sometimes we don't really understand what it means. It's kind of like my daughter the other night. I, I brought home, uh, someone had brought a cake in to, to, the, to the office, and there was, it, my daughter loves cake, and it was a pink cake, and my daughter uh, loves pink, so it was a pink cake, so it was a perfect match for her. So I take a piece of cake home for her, and I tell her that she can have some as long as she eats her dinner. Well, <clears throat> she gets so excited about the cake that she can't eat her dinner because she keeps looking at the cake and how excited she's going to eat the cake and how she's going to eat the cake. And I just tell her, listen, let's finish your chicken. Let's finish your veggies. Let's finish all of that before. Well, anyway, she just can't. She's too excited. And I'm like, Mia, you know, we're going to. So Carrie sets the timer for 10 minutes, which was plenty of time for her to finish her food and said, 
We're going to set it for 10 minutes. If the timer goes off and you haven't finished your food, there's no cake. I mean, we've been going on this for like 20 minutes. And we're like, listen, that's it. Well, then she finally starts eating her food because she now has she has this motivation that she's got 10 minutes. And then she's been eating her food, but then she's kind of talking and talking about how great the cake is. I can't have the cake. And this cake is so much better than chicken. Cake is so much better than veggies. And cake is great and whatever. And then the, the, the timer goes off and she still hasn't finished all of her veggies. And she says, and she turns to me and her eyes are like as big as saucers. She says, oh no, Poppy, the timer is up and I'm not done with my veggies. And I mean, she was very concerned because she saw like, her whole evening just going down the drain. as this, And I said, Mia, it's okay. Listen, um, just finish your veggies, okay? Bobby's going to give you grace. And she's like, I'm going to give you grace. It's okay. And she's like, Bobby, I don't need grace. And she's like, and then she says, she says, I don't need grace. I am grace. <laughs> and I'm like, what? She says, yes, I'm Mia Grace Franquist. That's her middle name. And uh, she says, Papi, I am Grace. I don't need Grace. And, uh, and I'm telling you that, that I had to explain to her that Grace is more than just her middle name. Um, but, <clears throat> and so I, th- this kind of led into this whole like, theological discussion that I had now with a three-and-a-half-year-old about Grace, which was great. Um, but, and the whole thing is this. Grace is just this. It's unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But what grace does is that it doesn't just encompass mercy, that it's like, well, this is what I deserve, but I don't get that. But then I get blessed on top of that. We might say that grace is getting your cake even when your time is up. You see, and that's what Samson experiences in his life. After this whole fiasco that happens, there's this one day that Samson's in the prison and he touches the top of his shaved head and he feels something. For the first time in his life, he's able to feel the grace of God as it just a simple verse says, and the hair of his head began to grow again. Didn't have to. It could have been that he, he shaved his head and, and it could have been that's it, it's done. But instead, there's something that God did. God said, you know what, maybe he feels the top of his head and it, maybe God's not done with me yet. And part of the lesson that we need to learn is that sometimes there are consequences to our actions. You see, <clears throat> let, me, let me explain it this way. Um, if, um, if you leave church today in, in just a few moments and you decide to go to the bank that's right down the street, and, and I'm not suggesting this, but let's just say you do this, and you decide to break into that bank because you need a little extra Christmas money. So I'm going to get a real nice Christmas, so we're going to just, you know, heist this bank. And, um, you know, and so you've seen a couple bank robbery movies. You think you got it down. And so you, you, you go to rob the bank, and on the way out, the cops find you and they and they, you know, cuff you, they arrest you. But as you're leaving the bank, you say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Do you know what the Bible says? It says that if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's an amazing thing. It's in the book of first John, chapter one. At that very moment, if we're really repentant and sorry, God will forgive us. That doesn't mean we're not still going to jail. We're still going And you're going for a long time. But God will still... And you'll be a forgiven man in jail. But but that's the thing. And part of what this story teaches us is that there are consequences to our actions. There really are. But the other thing that I want you to see, too, is that for, for only the second time in Samson's story, as we've been looking at it for the last several weeks, 
do we see that Samson prays. And he finally gets it. Because he finally says, oh God, strengthen me just this once. You see, he finally realizes that it has nothing to do so much with his hair, but that the hair had everything to do with this connection that he had to God. You see, Samson was called to be their judge. He was to be their hero, their protector, the example of what it means to follow God and to walk with him. And when he's standing in between those two pillars, he calls out to God and he finally understands what it means to be the man that God wanted him to be. The, the man that his parents had trained him to be because he was raised in a godly home and the man that God desired for him to be and the man that Israel ultimately needed him to be. And so God strengthens him this one last time. Notice he doesn't say, I have hair on my head again, now I'm strong. Instead he says, God strengthen me because it has nothing to do with my hair but it has everything to do with what it represented which was my connection to you. And so he pushes the columns over and fulfills the mission of his life, which was to, 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 to save Israel from the Philistines. Now, there's one more thing I want to show you, and then I'm done. It's one of the last verses in your notes in Hebrews 11. It says, What more shall I say? I do not have the time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Saul and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, <clears throat> who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. Whenever Samson is mentioned in the New Testament, his failures are never mentioned. Let me go one further. Whenever anyone in the Old Testament is mentioned, any of the Old Testament heroes, their failures are never mentioned. Why? Because God is able to see everything you're able to become. God actually doesn't have a museum like we talked about in the beginning where he's just looking at everybody's failures. The Bible says that he's cast away all of our sins. He's forgiven them. He's forgotten them. And see, can I just tell you this? That you might be here and say, my life is beyond repair. I mean, I have just messed my life up so bad, but here's what I want to tell you. You're here today because you needed to hear a message that says that there is a God in heaven who doesn't just see where you are, but he sees everything that you're able to become. And that he can take your life and transform it if you're willing and open to surrendering to him. To say, God, I'm weak. I just don't have it all together. But if I humble myself before you, you can make me strong. Because if God can redeem Samson's life, he can redeem yours. Jesus said, I haven't come for this, the healthy. I came for the sick. We're sick. It's called sin. We've all got it. And Jesus came. He died on a cross. He was buried. He rose again. And now the forgiveness is available that can cure us from this, that can forgive us of this. You see... He came for all of us because all of us have messed things up. All of us have done the wrong thing. And it's when we come to him and say, God, I can't save myself. I can't do all of this myself. I need you. That's when he changes us. That in the moment of weakness that we come to him is when he's able to make us strong. Let's pray together. 
And God, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that you're able to take those of us who admit our weakness and that you're able to turn it into strength as we bring it to you. We thank you for a life like Samson that we can look at it and say these are the things that we don't want to repeat. But instead, but we also look at the courage at the end that he finally at the end became the man that you wanted him to be. God, it doesn't have to be that for us. And so we pray that we much sooner would become the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.